Good morning, and welcome to the 99% where the real gains are made. I am here with Marilyn this morning. Hey, guys. Bright and early with our coffees. <laughs> yeah, this is a good one. This is the, the 5 a.m. start here. It's, uh, it's good to see you bright and early. Oh, my gosh. It's a good thing we're both fairly chipper in the morning. <laughs> fairly. Fairly, but we're working on it. So give us a little slack today. Um, this episode is brought to you by Venga, which is our, our first sponsor, which is very exciting. We're, we're super excited to be working with a CBD company, Venga, which we've all tried out and we really enjoy their products. And in an upcoming episode, we're going to have Jay, the founder of Venga on. So keep a lookout for that one and you'll hear lots more about it. But in the meantime, if you want to check out their site and see what you think, maybe come up with some questions so that you are uh, better educated to listen to the the next podcast with with Jay, the founder. And Jesse, you'll go ahead and put the website maybe in the show notes afterwards so people can find that pretty easily. For sure. <laughs> it's, it's almost done, practically done. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a, a busy week here. Um, I just got back from a race in Sholo, Arizona, which is like 6,700 feet, something like that. And Maryland is actually currently a little higher than Tucson. Yeah, I'm in Boulder, Colorado. So that's today we were like, we need to talk about altitude because it's at the front of both of our minds. So today, yeah, we're going to run through a little bit about altitude. I, uh, I figured I'd fire things off with giving you a race recap, basically, because I won the race and that doesn't happen very often for anyone. I always tell people winning is always hard no matter what. Because, you know, it only takes one guy or girl. Um, so, yeah, it gives me a chance to talk about winning and talk about racing at altitude, which is very different than the other racing I've done this year, like in Tulsa, where it was, I think we were below sea level at some points. It was so low. Um, so, yeah, different, different environment and definitely some different things to deal with when you're racing at altitude. Yeah, and I think it's good to also note that, like, where you – live in Tucson, what the altitude is in Tucson, because that makes a difference as well. So Right. Yeah. So coming from just a little over 2000 feet. So we're looking at over a 4000 foot gain, which is, which is pretty significant. Um, I know some of the guys I was racing were coming from like a little over 5000 feet. So they're, it's a little more their home turf than than it was for me going going up 4000 feet. It's a, it's a big change on on how your body feels when you're up there. And there's a significant difference, like from 5,000 and up like so 5,000 and under you don't you're it's not going to be too bad when you're racing probably for most people you're not even going to really feel it um, some people say they do but it's pretty it's pretty minimal the actual effects but 5,000 and up you definitely start to have to change race strategies and the way you approach things and then for every thousand feet over 5,000 the this impact is significantly more so doing a race up over 6,000 feet is you really, really got to take some things into account for sure. Yeah. It's got to, it's got to really change your, your race plan because like you said, yeah, it you just gets infinitely harder every step you go up over that 5,000 foot mark. Um, so yeah, to talk about the race, it was, uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful place. If you haven't been to Sholo, I would definitely check it out. But the, the biggest thing for me is racing at altitude is, starting out in the swim is trying not to have a panic attack because if you've ever had a panic attack when you're not at altitude, it's kind of infinitely worse. Once you get up there, 
and you know, the race always starts out hard. We had a mass start granted there was only four of us in the water, but it was still a mass start. And so trying to like shake people off. So, um, I always have to be really careful basically not to kick because I can kick really hard, but it sucks a lot of oxygen. And then I end up like flipping over on my back and doing breaststroke and not moving forward at all. So that is like, you, when you're with the swim, anyone I have that ever races at altitude, it's like that first hundred to 500 meters where you're, it's, you're so tempted. You're already super, super amped and the energy is high and you're used to going really hard. And that is like, can be game changing at altitude compared to sea level or, or that kind of thing. Um, that panic that you're talking about, it's almost uh, for every extremely hard effort at altitude. So that first, especially in water, your heart rate goes much, much higher than it would at sea level. And your ability to recover is, is completely different. So, you know, it's like that, that panic attack you talk about is it's real and not necessarily because of the crowd, but because effort at high intensity at altitude is so different. So that swim managing that swim start, like you're talking about is, is like a really key part of swimming at altitude. Yeah. And I think the other piece of that too, is water is usually colder at altitude. So you have like that shock to your system from the cold water, kind of squeezing the capillaries. And then you're dealing with the, the altitudes, your heart rate spiking, and you got these kind of dual forces that are really, really impacting you. So being extra careful to like start easy and build into the effort at altitude is, is really important. And I mean, everyone knows that like the swim really sets up your day. So if you, if you have, if you're in an extra two or three minutes in the water because you have a panic attack, that's not a good way to start out a long day. So yeah, just really being careful there can definitely help you race successfully at altitude. Um, but yeah, so I had a good start and I didn't have a panic attack. I kept my heart rate in check. I really didn't kick. It was kind of funny because I had a few people hitting my fit, feet for a minute and they were probably like, what is this guy doing? Like, why are we just hitting these feet that aren't moving? But I was like, well, this is what I need to do to, to keep my heart rate in check. Um, ended up just being two of us getting off the front. And then I ended up kind of taking a different line and getting to the swim exit first. And from there on, I got to lead the rest of the day, which, which was super exciting. That's pretty cool. Lead wire to wire is also pretty special, Jesse, you know? Thanks. I should thank uh, Ben Deal for pulling me the first half of the swim and sorry, I chose a different line and didn't get to pull you the second half. But, you know, after that I was, I was solo. Um, but then, you know, got out of the swim again, I always try to be careful in transition because like this one, you get out of the water and you're running up a boat ramp and it's kind of steep and you don't want to like just go shotgunning onto the run because you know, you, you need to be careful to like, keep your heart rate in check. So I try to run pretty easy into the transition and not, blow up but then you get on your bike and you start riding and the the one fun thing about racing at altitude is is your bike moves really fast like if you ever look at like home run records they're always at um the baseball stadium in denver which if i was more into ball sports i'd tell you the name of the stadium but um it's the same the velodrome like the the, the hour record and stuff they always try and do it at altitude which is kind of like a <laughs> you know, crapshoot in terms of effort and, right. but the air is thin. That's why if people are wondering, why is it, why is your bike move fast? Your bike always moves fast, the higher altitude because the air is thinner. So yeah, harder to breathe, but your bike naturally goes faster. So once you get up there and you, you know, you can push less power and you still get a lot of free speed, especially like if you think about your CDA a little more up there, like, yeah, you can really just kind of 
punch a small hole through very little air and go pretty fast. So I adjusted my target power down about 20, 25 watts from my last 70 point, well, 20, yeah, 20 watts from my last 70.3, given the altitude. And now, wait a minute, well, let me interrupt you while you're saying that. Did you, you spe specifically pick 20, 25 watts because it was over 6,000 feet? Like if, would have that changed if it was 5,000? Or four thousand, like dive into that a little bit. I know I keep I keep interjecting on your on your actual race recap, but I think these are important details for people to learn from. So, um, you you very specifically said 20, 25 watts. That's a super specific number, and you're at you know somewhere between six and seven thousand feet at this race. So tell us the thought process that you went through to come come to that conclusion. Um, so I, given where my FTP is at. It's, it's about like 10 to 15 Watts for me, every thousand foot jump, which is like, I'd say roughly like 5% of, of what I can ride at. So like my, you know, my FTP is around 300 and my last 70.3, I was riding kind of close to 270 and, you know, I took, so yeah, I took a little bit down from there. So I was kind of aiming for 250 and if we were, if I was only at like 5,000, 5,500, I might've just bumped that up about 10 Watts and aimed for closer to 260, but kind of, yeah, did, did a little math on that. And I mean, fortunately we have Mount Lemon right here, so I can kind of ride up there a little bit and gain a little bit of like what that feels like. And I've done some workouts up there. So I kind of like, I've done that similar adjustment and I can keep an eye on RPE and heart rate and kind of know that that's how I respond. And that, that table is like definitely a sliding scale for how people respond, but I would say getting ready to adjust in some increment, you know, whether it's 10 Watts or whether it's 5% or, um, I don't know if you have like a rule you use with people or if you just kind of go by feel. No, I, or... I just give them a, yeah, I mean, basically exactly what you're saying there. And then I'll, I'll adjust like your, well, one, your heart rate is not, is, is not the same. So when people are looking at that, they might say, was well, I mean, my heart rate is also five, 10% lower. It's like, no, that's actually going to be, you know, higher heart rate's going to be higher perceived exertion and breathing is going to be a little higher, but Watts are like you say in that, you know, bringing it down sort of 10 Watts there, 10, 15 Watts, depends on the athlete, right? I mean, some of them, it's going to be a little bit more, some a little bit less. And again, depending where they're traveling from, how they respond to altitude. So more, it's um, not an exact equation. So I, I stay away from that a little bit, but the general rule that you just mentioned is, is a good one for like rule of thumb for people to follow if they're doing it themselves and, and they're unsure. Nice. Yeah. And I do think I, I tend to like drop my cadence slightly. Um, like, I mean, a, a couple of RPMs, nothing crazy, but again, the kind of regulate that, that Watts to heart rate, um, keeping my heart rate from going too high. And then since my Watts are a little lower, I can afford to, uh, have a little more force per pedal stroke. And I, I don't know, I probably, a lot of people don't need to worry about that, but that does help me a little bit. Like we're talking like 90 to 87 or something, a really small drop, but it does kind of help a little bit. Yeah. And what, Jason, what you're talking about there is that, you know, obviously higher RPM creates, it's working from a different energy system and it creates a little bit higher heart rate. So if you're looking at like, okay, I'm at altitude and my heart rate is already higher and I want to lower that a little bit. Plus you're burning more sugar at altitude versus 
at, at sea level. And so if you just bring the RPM down, like you say, a very small adjustment, you're going to race a little more successfully. What people have to be careful of is that they don't dip down to, if you're already someone who runs like a 75, you know, 80 cadence, you don't want to be rolling around a half Ironman at 65. Cadence. That's going <laughs> right. to be, your legs are going to be shot for the run. So again, you know, these kinds of little adjustments are, are tricks of the trade um, and important, but know yourself as an athlete as well. All right. So you're on the bike now. I'm on the bike now. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I saw, um, seeing and Debbie, the, the tri sports folks out there, which is cool. I haven't seen them in a while. They were super supportive. So hi, seeing and Debbie. Um, and this bike starts out with like a 15 mile climb and I was like 15 mile false flat climb. I was willing to go a little bit harder there because I kind of wanted to get out of sight, out of mind from the other guys that were chasing me. So I went a little bit above effort and then I knew there was like basically a 25 mile falls flat downhill after that. So I went a little bit above effort, turned around, didn't see anybody, was pretty psyched on that and then started going downhill and basically put it in my biggest gear and then just tried to stay arrow and not, and then my power was like, like steadily dropping, but I was also riding at like 40 miles an hour. Yeah. And that's that thin air a little bit, right? I mean, totally. you're going to, you're going to move fast. It's cold and you know, all, all of those things come into account. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I'm willing to not try and push to go from whatever 38 to 41, because that's going to take a lot of effort and I'm already going really fast. So I let my power drop there and I just kind of tucked and rolled for like whatever, 20, 25 miles, because then I knew the course turns and goes back uphill. And then again, I went like a little bit over that target power for the last 15 miles. And actually one of the racers came from like almost two minutes back and then basically caught me. He was like 15 seconds back at that point. But then I was able to bring my power up again as we started kind of climbing back towards the lake. And this guy had kind of burned all his matches to get close to me. And then his power started fading when we started like coming back in. So, um, I ended up, you know, getting to transition like a minute ahead of him. And I think it was like mostly due to like appropriate power placing on the course, not like. Yeah. And maybe they don't have this kind of, that kind of knowledge and experience at altitude to know like, Hey, you can't for every match that you burn at altitude, the, the impact on the overall day is so much significantly more like you, there isn't that wiggle room to make those kinds of errors. Uh, just like we talked about on the swim start, right? I mean, you, you can maybe blast yourself if you're really, really swim fit for that first 200 meters to get on a pack or something, but at altitude, you make that little bit too much and make that error. It can really, you know, affect your whole day right down to having to, you know, stop for a second and let everything calm down. Um, same thing that you're saying, like if he just rode a little bit too hard for too long and, and you're not able to recover at altitude, like you normally do all of a sudden that that's like game changing. So that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, rolled into T2, got onto the run and, and then same, same kind of idea with a run is where like you start running and, and you just, you can't, you can't like really throttle down. And I feel like it almost acts as like a natural governor where I feel like I always hit a certain pace and it's like, I, I feel that feeling of like, if I go faster than this, I'm going to end up 100% exploding. And, and you're breathing really hard, right? I mean, right. you're like, <laughs> you're, I, you look down at your pace and you're like, good God, and your heart rate and you're just, and, and you're breathing just like a freight train, which <laughs> I feel like even once you settle in, you it never really your breathing's like that the whole race. It's not like it's, it's going to 
going to change. I don't know if you experienced that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like I definitely, um, like usually I can chat with people on the run because usually it's like a muscular endurance thing with me that, and cardiovascularly I'm okay. But then when I'm racing at 6,000 feet or 7,000 feet, it's like that, that switch flips. And I'm like, I, I cannot say hi to you. I can wave at you maybe, but we will not be having a conversation <laughs> because I am breathing. It. It's like, eh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can grunt at you, but that's what we got right now. It's a happy grunt. It's a friendly <laughs> grunt. <laughs> yeah, I tried to like say something to somebody as I ran by once and they were like, what? And I realized that I tried to put basically all the words into one and I was like, okay, forget <laughs> it. I'll just see you later. <laughs> this is not happening right now. Um, yeah, but I do I do feel like there's like that that governor where I was running, I don't know, like 620s or something. And I was like, if I go down to six minute pace, I will be like on the side of the trail coughing and I will not recover at all. Now compare that to like you, uh, the last half Ironman that you did that is like in terms of pacing, like compare pace and, and that kind of thing, just to give people a little bit more idea when you say, you know, 620 versus six minute, obviously when you're running that fast, even two, three seconds per mile, it's significantly different. And then the altitude. So like, talk, talk about that a little again, just like we did the bike, you know, you're very specific on your paces and knowing what they are. And again, the, you know, when you're, when you're running at, you know, 80, 85, 90% of your max for a half, um, keep in mind listeners that, yeah, even two, three seconds per mile is significantly different. So sometimes people tend to think in like 20, 30 seconds, or even a minute per mile's difference. So you really want to be thinking, like for Jesse in like two, three, five seconds, 10 seconds per mile, it's a difference. And you're talking about the difference between like 20 seconds per mile uh, difference. So talk about, walk everyone through that decision a little bit. Um, well, so just to give a little bit of background, I guess the last half I did was St. George, which is hilly. It's also not at sea level. And then this, this race was also hilly and on trail for a lot of the run. Um, so it's, it's a little bit hard to compare like absolute paces. So I relied a little bit more on feel for this because like the, the course for deuces wild is, is literally never flat. You're always like kind of undulating, like around a lake or like kind of up and down. And, and so it's really hard to like pick an exact pace and say, okay, this is what I'm going to stick to. Um, and, and so it, it made, I relied a little bit more on how I felt and just kept an eye on things and made sure I was never running too fast in the beginning. And too fast, I kind of decided was like around six minute pace, whereas St. George, I ran like a 119. So I was like just over six minute pace for the whole thing, um, which again was like hilly. So I'd say if I was doing like a flat course, it might be closer to like say 550. Um, so I was trying to stay slower than, than that like as my absolute fastest at basically any moment during the race again, which would be like what I held last time. So we're looking at like, you know, 10 seconds of just right off the top. And then if I was climbing or anything like that, you know, again, it's just like, I, I'm not going to look at it. I'm just going to run on feel. And, and you know, you could also do that via heart rate, um, which is kind of that same thing where, but I kind of know that feeling of like, Oh, I'm starting to, I'm starting to hit threshold and I don't want to go over because I know, I will not come back. I'll be walking up the rest of this hill. And the thing is you're talking about is you're dialing the pace back and someone might make the mistake of thinking, well, I'm dialing it back this much. So therefore it's going to feel easier, but talk about like, <laughs> did that feel any easier than holding, you know, five fifty six six minute pace, that kind of thing 
No, it's, uh, I mean, for me, it feels harder. Cause like, I'm not used to that, like gasping for air feeling. So the whole time on the run, I feel like, I guess, death for lack of a better word. And, yeah, and uh, like death sound like altitude racing. <laughs> yeah. And, but you just, you know, you kind of like, well, I, I can probably keep going. So that's fine. Um, and, and yeah. And I think if you look at, if you look at run splits at altitude, I'd say in general, people tend to race more, they tend to get more positive splits at altitude because it is harder and like it gets infinitely harder the, the longer in it. And, and so I think it's, it's really good to be careful to hold, hold back a little bit in the beginning. And again, that's kind of how I paced this race is it was two loops. And I tried to hold back a little bit more in the beginning. The second half, I tried to go harder and maybe my heart rate only increased one or two beats. Cause it's already so high. And I might've still positive split it, but like I effectively went a little bit harder the second loop because my heart rate did go up a little bit, but, um, but and I think it kind of goes into one thing you mentioned earlier is that like, you're just, you're just ripping through glycogen and you're also, I, I noticed that I get super dehydrated and I'm like just grabbing every cup that I can. Um, well, so you're ripping lot- through glycogen as, and you're trying and you can't like your stomach also at altitude doesn't accept. So it's like, it's like a real crapshoot because you're like, I am I'm working way harder and I'm ripping through way more glycogen. However, it's not your stomach sometimes. And some people get it really badly where you go to, you go to take fuel and your stomach doesn't accept it the same way as it does at sea level either. Um, I've definitely had that like really extended bloated gut at altitude and, and your stomach's just like, no way I'm not, I'm not taking in any calories. And, and for some people, what you actually fuel with during a race at altitude has to change. You know, what works at sea level not necessarily you go to take that in at altitude and you all have all kinds of GI distress. So that's, um, you know, that's definitely something that has to be thought about in order to keep, keep racing. Well, that's for sure. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, even I noticed that in this race where I got, I got into the, the bike and I was like, I didn't have enough pure water and I was drinking my mix and you know, it was a small race. So it was a little bit hard to get water. And I, uh, I definitely got off the bike wishing I had more water to kind of help my stomach dilute what I was drinking. Usually I can race with a fairly concentrated mix and be okay. And then, and then on the run, I'd usually do like two, potentially three gels in a 70.3. And I did one and I was like, okay, that is, that is it. And I took a little bit of the, uh, the sports drink on course, but just, yeah, my stomach was getting that feeling of like, if you put more in me, that might not go well. But you're also um, teetering on the like, I feel kind of bonked. Right. Because it's really, you know, like you said, like we're talking about your higher heart rate's higher, you know, efforts higher, uh, burning more sugar. And so it's like, I'm somewhere between slightly bonked and wanting to throw up. So <laughs> racing at altitude sound, sound pretty awesome. But however, <laughs> yeah. you know all of these things, like you said, if you know these things and you know how to to execute and pace yourself through it and, and what to do on the fly as these things come up, you can, you can race really well. The mistakes come in when people are just completely unaware of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, overall it was, a, it was a really fun experience racing at altitude, but yeah, like knowing your margin for error is a little bit smaller and then being ready to know like, okay, what do I need to put in my body right now? And I ended up, yeah, just chugging a ton of water to kind of help my, my gut get back on track. And even though it wasn't that hot out, another, I think that, you know, everything's a little bit stronger at altitude. So that sun was kind of beating down. So I was dumping a bunch of water on myself 
and that definitely definitely helped me stay cool even though again like the the spectators are didn't look like it was like super hot out but i i felt pretty warm running yeah it's definitely i mean i've heard that obviously i've raced in boulder a ton raced at high high altitude and done tour gila that's like all above seven thousand feet those kinds of races and and it is it's it's it, the temperature can say like 70s or 80s but it feels like you know 90 and and you you know the rate that you sunburn is a lot more those kinds of things so um you know just being a same thing aware of that knowing okay well normally an 80 degree race it's not that hot a race for me but um yeah dehydration at altitude is is just significantly more anyways and then it will feel hotter especially on the run for sure so you know these little things, just knowing them going in, you're going to be able to adapt. Oh, I usually have one bottle per hour on the bike. I'm likely going to need one and a half to two bottles per hour on the bike. Or like you say, I have a <laughs> now I need to, you know, dilute that a little bit more and those, those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and like I said, I think that it's, it's important to uh, try and make those changes ahead of time. Or if you feel it happening, I think you've got to be more willing to like stop and adjust right away. Yeah. Because if you push that line a little too long at altitude, like we've been saying this whole time, you're just not going to recover. So like you, you need to be willing to say, okay, like maybe I need to stop at this aid station and walk this aid station or like stop my bike at this aid station to make sure I get exactly what I need. Yeah. And that whatever that 30 seconds can save, you know, minutes <laughs> off your run, because as we've said before, walking is really slow. You don't want to end up walking. <laughs> Never end up want to end up walking. Um, oh gosh, right. So yeah, yeah, let's. Let, sorry, I was gonna say, we'll talk about like your travel going to the race because that's a really common question. So you're, you know, just over two thousand. You're going up to six, so that's a big change. Someone coming from sea level, maybe they're coming to Boulder, or they're going to one of those races. Really common question I get is like, when's the best window to travel? Tell us like about your decisions to travel there. I know it was a driving distance for you, so that's like it's nice and easy. You're going from Tucson up to northern Arizona, but it still matters, right? So there might have been. You know, someone would be, oh, did you go up there for the three weeks before, or did you go up early in the week, or what was what was your strategy there? Um, so I went with the uh, like the little time as possible between when I get there and when I race, so that hopefully my body doesn't realize what's going on yet. So I arrived at like two o'clock in the afternoon the day before the race, and and yeah, I I think that for me, that strategy seems to work out pretty well. In, unless I happen to have all the time in the world and can arrive three weeks early. But I, I also know that I just don't train as well at, at altitude. So if I can spend as much time down here as possible, get in some really good training, even if it's just like sharpening taper workouts, and then save everything to just kind of shotgun up there and race while my body hasn't like totally adjusted. Um, if I can do that, that's, that's the best way for me. And I, I know people are different, but I, I think that's a pretty good strategy. I think that the trouble comes in when you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go three days ahead of time. I think it's kind of like a, maybe a normal amount of travel time for people going to a race, but I think it's kind of worst case scenario for altitude. Yeah, I agree. It's like that 24, 48 hour window is like, if you're going to go last minutes, that's perfect. Um, and then from there, it really is, I mean, to totally adapt and adjust to altitude, it is a good solid three weeks. And so what gets tricky for people's Ironmans and like really big races is, you know, 
with, with the preparation that needs to go in and the actual travel, traveling last minute, 48 hours can be tricky, especially with like race meetings and setting up everything and just the travel in general. Um, and obviously for, for most people with, with their life, going three weeks out to a race <laughs> you know, that's, that's likely not going to be possible. So it's, I, I think you do the best you can in terms of traveling and, and go with that rule of thumb, leave it as close as possible and still be able to logistically get all of your race preparation done at the venue. Then, then that's going to set you up as best as possible. I mean, some people are really in a good position where they maybe can, you know, have an altitude tent if they if it's a really really important race to them and they've put a lot of work and preparation into it and you know they don't have any um they have you know a lot of things accessible to them maybe they do something like if you lived in tucson you could go live up on mount lemon for for the three weeks before uh when i did tour gila i would go live in flagstaff for the three weeks before and then travel there so things like that or if you had access to an altitude tent you slept in that every single night and and then you know did your training basically you're sleeping high and training low and that that type of situation so that's obviously pretty extreme and for um maybe if it's a super important goal to you and you want to put that much into it if you if that that's likely not going to be possible for most people so traveling last minute as last minute as you possibly can and and be logistically organized and and not too stressed for your race that's that's really going to be your best bet and one thing i have seen people do that seems to work with some success is like let's say you need to get to there to the race a couple of days early for all the stuff if there's a place that's low that you can stay in for the a couple of days before, like I know a lot of people do this with Leadville is they stay an hour away and then they drive to Leadville for packet pickup and then drive back and then drive up so that they're still getting to sleep at someplace fairly low what they're used to. And they're still like, they're not, their body's not trying to totally adjust for just those, those small trips. And it seems like an annoyance, but I think that that really can be worth it, especially if that can shrink your time at altitude to like less than 48 hours before. Um, I, I think that can really help you perform on race day rather than spending that three or four days up there and being like in the middle of, of acclimatizing and then having to race. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've seen anybody do that where they kind of drive up and drive back, but no, that's, that, I mean, I, I haven't personally seen that, but that's a really, I mean, that's a really good idea. Obviously like a race like Leadville where it's up over, you know, it's like 10,000 feet or whatever it's at. So you know, you're being an hour away, you're still going to be at at least 5,000 feet. So, um, and, and being like we said, every thousand feet above 5,000. So if you're sleeping at 10,000 or, and you're coming from sea level, that's a monster change. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, I haven't specifically seen people do that, but it's, it's great advice. Yeah. I think that's, that's another point to touch on here is I, I know, especially like me personally, but I've seen it with a lot of other athletes too, is that you just don't sleep well at altitude when you're not used to it. So if you're traveling to a race and you're like, okay, I'm going to rest up the last couple of days because it's been a crazy work week and I just traveled and you get there and you go to sleep and, and then you wake up and you're like, oh, like you use any of those apps to track your sleep. It's like, why am I not recovered? I, I lied in bed for whatever, eight and a half hours last night, but yeah, sleep does not do the same thing for me at altitude, and I I need a lot more of it, and I get a little bit less benefit. So that's I think that's another perk of like staying away from altitude as long as you can, or sleeping somewhere else. Like it's it's great for the training effect 
to sleep at altitude, but it's not great for your day-to-day recovery. So if you can plan on that, like plan on avoiding that, or if you are in that situation, just know that you need to go to bed earlier and get up later. And, and that's going to, it's definitely going to impact your sleep and how you prepare for the race. Yeah. Sleep, sleep at altitude and and day-to-day hydration, those types of things, like they're, they're really affected. And, and so, you know, coming in last minute, if you're not able to adapt for a long time to that stuff, you're going to avoid putting your body through that kind of stress before heading into the race. The other thing to keep in mind too, is, um, you won't experience this with, with racing and just going to an altitude race, but say you're, you're planning to do a good solid training block, or you are planning to go for three weeks before, for your race is, you, you want to make sure you know if you have any kind of um, iron issues or anything like that, uh, get that checked before. Some people will just take it upon themselves and say, well, I'll just start taking iron before I go to altitude. I don't recommend that. Obviously, playing around with iron supplements is something that you should do through your physician. Get your iron tested, find out where it's at, talk to them about if you're going to altitude or not, and and then, you know, figure out if you need to supplement with iron before going there. Although you might not need it where you currently live or, or at sea level, it's something to get checked out. If you, if you plan on going for a training stretch or going three weeks before to adapt, um, that's, that can make or break your day as well. If you're someone who struggles with iron issues and you're going to spend three weeks at, you know, before you head to a race, go to your doctor and talk to them about that and adjust all of that so that you don't put all this time and effort into traveling to a race, going there to adapt. And we forgot about this detail with your iron and, and you're just really too, you know, too affected by that to be able to perform well. So those details make a big difference. Yeah. And even if you're not low enough to require a supplement, I think paying attention to eating iron rich foods can definitely help. Cause yeah, even if you're, you're okay, you still want to keep the iron up to where like it usually is. So so making some dietary changes can be a really helpful thing to keep you where you're used to so that if you fall down, you're like, maybe you're not going all the way down to being like low enough, but still kind of out of that range you're used to. Um, I find myself like not needing a supplement, but doing that adjustments when I'm at altitude. Yeah. You don't want to supplement unless you've worked with your doctor to be able to do that. That's a, I actually did that once <laughs> the first time I went to altitude. I went, I just was like, Oh, I should start taking iron because I, you know, I'm going to altitude and oof, that was a big mistake. I actually got pretty, I wasn't, I was fine with the altitude, but I was kind of sick from the iron oh, <laughs> and then that took, took some time to correct. So I learned the hard way with that one. Um, any other, I guess we talked about eating during the race, any other dietary things you feel like changes once you're at altitude? No, I mean, if, uh, I think, are we, tr- let's, are we going to transition away? I've, I really think that, um, you know, talking about racing and if we transition towards a few training tips, we won't hammer too long on the training. And if you're going there for a camp or, or like going to, you know, live at altitude for a little while or something like that. And, and so in terms of, I guess the, uh, uh, the days before a race, um, would you change what you eat? The iron rich foods. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference right before a race. I, that's more of a preparation going into the race. Um, but the days before, I think probably just paying attention to that, that, you know, you want to 
increase your glycogen stores before a race. That's going to happen naturally as you rest for a race anyways, increasing your carbohydrates just slightly. You don't need to go crazy. However, if you're feeling a little bit, you know, under fueled because you're at altitude and, the, and you're expending a little bit more energy, you might just need to increase your carbohydrates a little bit. Definitely increase your hydration. That's a big one, right? You definitely need to increase hydration. But going away from racing and talking about being at a at altitude for an extended period of time, I would say not a lot of dietary changes other than the the paying attention to the iron thing. That's the big one. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time at altitude living up at 10,000 feet and then training down at 5,000 um, high altitude camps in Flagstaff, living up in Nederland, training in Boulder for years, those kinds of things. Um, you know, I, I definitely didn't have to make major adjustments to my, my nutrition in order to, to be at a training camp for those. Nice. Yeah. I think, I think for me, one thing I do try and be a little more careful of is I'm, I can be pretty good with anything as I'm leading up to a race, but I think I need to cut out a little bit more fiber than I normally would just because I think, yeah, my, my gut function is slightly slower. So that's the one thing I would say. And then with that hydration, I would say, make sure you're kind of incorporating whatever amount of electrolyte you need. Cause I think you could definitely get yourself in trouble with just chugging a bunch of straight water, um, in that, in those situations as well. Um, but yeah, I feel like that's pretty good for nutrition. Yeah. I think, you know, um, like I say, if we want to, we want to talk just a tiny bit about, you know, if you're going to do a training camp at altitude, some of the things that you, so you chose specifically going into this race to stay at home. And we touched on that. Now, what if you make the decision to, to go three weeks out? and do a, a little training camp going in. And what was interesting about what you said is you, you mentioned you wanted to stay at home so that you could keep your speed and keep your effort and keep your recovery. So let's talk about the opposite. You're gonna go to altitude for the three weeks before a race and you're gonna do a little training camp up there. What would that look like for changing your training going into the race? And then specifically like your sessions, your expectations on your sessions, maybe the design of even the workouts of what you're doing, those kinds of things. And I think, I think, you know, that might be, we've, we've talked about the coming in last minute, what it's like to execute in a race. So let's go the other end of the, the spectrum where it's like, I am actually going to go three weeks out. How do I map out my training to make sure that I show up on race day? Now I'm, 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 a, I'm adjusted to the altitude, but what mistakes and positive things can we do in our training in that three weeks while we're at altitude? Obviously you're not going to just go there and sit on the couch and adapt to <laughs> adapt to altitude the whole time. Um, well, so, okay. I, I think that like, like I said, I would want to have my speed and my, my power kind of a little bit higher going into that three week block because once, once you're at altitude, it's just harder to go fast or produce a lot of power to get a lot of force out of your body. So you want to have that piece kind of squared before you take off. You also, like we've talked about before traveling, you want to be like a little bit rested. You don't want to be doing killer sessions right up until when you leave, because the first three days of getting to altitude is going to be hard on your body as it is. So I wouldn't necessarily like, like taper for that, but I would make sure that, you know, I, I have an easy day or something so that I'm not totally smashed getting to altitude and then trying to recover. Cause like all the things we said, like, you're not going to be able to recover as much when you're sleeping, your, your body's dealing with this other stimulus. So I'd say make those first three days pretty light and easy and let your body like start to acclimate on its own while you're moving around. 
And then you can take a chunk of time. Let's say you've got like, like 10 days in the middle there where you can step on the gas a little bit harder. Like maybe your sessions are a little bit more aerobic in nature because you know, your heart's already working pretty hard when you're at altitude, but you can do, you can do some mileage and help get your body adjusted. And then along with that, I would say, I always like to include some super short, sharper things, whether it's like 30 seconders on the run or two minuters on the bike to kind of hit those bigger powers still without as much of like a, um, an aerobic cost, because you know, your, your heart is just not going to be able to get as high for the same output. And you, um, you adjust the recovery too, right? So like if you're talking about doing 30 seconders, you might do 15 by 30 seconds, but, and your rest might normally be 30, 30 or something or 30, 15, 30 seconds on 15 off, but you're at altitude, you might do 30 seconds really fast. So you still get that neuromuscular activation and you're still getting a little bit of speed work, but your recovery, because like we talked about, you know, at altitude, there's a higher impact in heart rate and, and the recovery takes a little longer. It might be 45 seconds or it might be even a minute for some people. Right. I, I don't know if you make those kinds of adjustments. Yeah, totally. Thank you. I, I even go up to like 30, 90 where I got a full minute and a half off. Like, cause you know, the, like, like we're talking about, like the, the important thing here is that getting that, that 30 seconds of like fast work in there. So if you take longer recovery, it's probably not going to like impact the overall session. So I'd rather err on the side of getting a ton of rest and hitting the 30 seconds really, really strong. Um, and yeah, if I was going to do that same workout, say in Tucson, it would be 30 thirties. So yeah, I really, I, I definitely increased the rest there. So that was, yeah, good point. Yeah, and you, and, and what's important there too, is you're, you're saying, okay, uh, we've only got three more weeks in the race. And, and I guess maybe for people who aren't following a little bit of what we're saying is that speed work at altitude is pretty tough. Right. And you're, and most people who live at altitude for a long time, you know, or they just do a camp at altitude, they're, they're not work. You'll hear people say, well, I'm going to for pure speed work, like marathoners, bike racers, that kind of stuff. They actually go into like, go to sea level to do their, their speed work, or they go as, you know, the really, really high end elite athletes before they go to the Olympics, they live at altitude, but then they go into like an oxygen chamber and, and, and with the treadmill to do their really, really fast stuff so that they can actually go fast enough and recruit that, that speed. So if you're only going to a race three weeks before, and you're planning out your training, the speed work we're talking about needs to be short and it needs to be on high you know, quite a bit of recovery and your take, all of that might look different. Like you're saying, your speed might already be developed further out before you travel, you travel there, you let yourself adapt for a couple of days. And now you're planning the key things you said there, Jesse, is that at first you're aerobic and you're keeping things predominantly aerobic, maybe even more strength-based. If you are going to do speed, it's going to be short, sharp, which is great into the final preparation in a race anyways, on long extended recovery. The speed that you're looking for out of those sessions is likely going to be just a little bit less as well, right? Totally, yeah. So so the one, the other thing that I'll, I'll say, just real touch on really quickly, if you're making these types of decisions, you want to know if you're someone who, I guess if you're a responder or not a responder to altitude, that's a whole nother topic. Maybe we'll touch on another time for, for training camps, but, um, but yeah, so anyways, yeah. Making sure that, that those, those short key sessions, if you're going to add a little speed, they're spread out further from one another. So instead of you might do them maybe 48 hours apart, give yourself 
72 hours between, like give yourself a little bit longer between doing them as well as the reps themselves being shorter and the recovery being longer. Yeah. And just to add to that, one thing I would stay away from is that kind of like tempo work. I think that can really beat you up at altitude. So even though it might be slightly more race specific, I would say that you want to, again, have all that stuff done. And if you do do that, like we were talking about with the, the harder things is you want to break it up and give yourself lots of recovery and just know that that session is going to be pretty taxing. And so maybe you stack a few of those as you're leading into a race, you want to do a little less of that at altitude and, and, you know, kind of try to bear in mind that our sport is extremely aerobic. And if you're doing aerobic work, even if it's leading up, that will benefit you the greatest for the race itself. Absolutely. Like, and especially if you're racing something like half Ironman or Ironman, you know, speed, nobody finishes an Ironman with their heart rate at 180 going, you know, as, as fast as their fastest 400. Maybe some do, maybe very, 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 there's very few people, very select elite. Well, when that happens, I always question what happened the rest of the marathon. So that you right. can do I that. Mean, if there's a sprint finish between for first and second, obviously there's exceptions to the rules where we do see this. So there's always going to be like that one race and these two guys that had a sprint finish, but the majority, if you watch thousands and thousands of the finishers of a, of an Ironman, it's, it's typically not like when you're doing a 5k or 10k where it's your heart rate and your, you know, that's slowing you down at the, at the end, it's, it's going to be your aerobic conditioning and your strength endurance. And so, you know, keep that in mind when you're planning that last three weeks of training, if you're doing that last three weeks at altitude to adapt to your race. Yeah, totally. And, and yeah, I think the only other thing I was at is that your taper might need to be like a slightly less because again, you want to make sure you're totally recovered and it does depend on how well you respond. And I know like me personally, I don't recover well at all at altitude. So I need to be pretty careful with training sessions. I do up there. Other people like I, can maybe push it a little bit longer and still recover fine, but hopefully you've had some time to like play with that before you're going to this big race. So, you know, how you personally respond or you and your coach have kind of talked about how you've responded in the past. So you can formulate an educated, educated plan based on, based on all that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that was a, that was a pretty good wrap up for Al Sud. What do you think? Yeah. I, you know, I think people can take a lot away from this. I think that if you, you know, there's going to be some altitude races coming up. I mean, Sholo was, was in Northern Arizona, but Boulder's coming up pretty soon for a lot of people, you know, that's, that looks like, you know, 70.3 that people are getting excited about and they want to race. And so, you know, if you're, if you're looking at some of these altitude races and you're starting to plan your travel, you're starting to plan your training, you're starting to look at your race plan execution, you're looking at the times of these races and, and you're trying to, maybe you're trying to get a world's qualification you're looking at the times and you're thinking, geez, those look significantly different than they do at other, at other races. Knowing this stuff now that might impact how you are going to execute execute your race and, and be able to compete at that race. So if you're saying, oh, the run times look unusually different, or the swim times look a little bit different, the bikes look faster, these kinds of things. So you're gonna you're gonna know why that happens. So I think you can take take the little uh, tidbits away from this and and get yourself well prepared for whatever kind of race you're gonna do at altitude, and and hopefully have a more enjoyable day and more successful day at at any kind of altitude race. Yeah. And for sure, get mentally prepared for the, uh, the change in suffering. It's definitely a little bit different when you're suffering at altitude. So, you know, get ready for that, that little fun piece. Um, 
And thanks for sharing your race experience. I mean, congratulations. That's pretty huge. Oh, thank you. Um, and yeah, if you do have any questions about racing at altitude or anything, feel free to reach out to any of us and yeah, we'd love to help you get ready. If you're, if you're doing Boulder or any other, the, the altitude races coming up. Awesome. Sure. Well, thanks for spending the morning with me, Marilyn. Yeah, me too. Cheers. <laughs>